Susan Schlupley and Brian Hockman joined Jonathan Green on the Drawing Room, Radio National to discuss the history of eavesdropping. This interview was broadcasted on the 2nd of August 2018 on ABC Radio National. Drawing Room, over here. Are you on the list? Doesn't matter. Come on in. Here, have one of these. Hey Alexa, read me the news. We'll have to pay you some. No, 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 no. I got... This call is being monitored for training purposes. This interview will in fact be recorded for... uh broadcast and trading purposes. Uh, recording is, is an aspect of our modern lives, whether you are you or me, or the United States President and his lawyer. Uh, a lot of what you say will be committed to the permanent record, whether or not you realise it. Now, the, the technology, well, that might have, well, helped that process, but that, that basic thing of eavesdropping, that has a long, long history. Uh, Brian Hockman is uh, an associate professor at Georgetown University. He is the author of a book about to be released called The Uninvited Ear, A History of Wiretapping in the United States. Uh, Susan Shupley is an artist and researcher, author of another book that looms called Material Witness. They are guests uh, at, a, at an exhibition being staged at the Ian Potter uh, in Melbourne called Eavesdropping. And our guests in the drawing room this evening, welcome both. I gave an example there, Brian, of, of you know the sort of current thing we have about tapes and eavesdropping and recordings, but this is a thing almost as old as electronic transmission. It is, in fact, as old as electronic transmission. There is no such thing as wires without wire tapping. What was the first wire to be tapped? That is a good question. Um, the earliest statute... Uh, uh, written in the state of California, in fact, to prohibit wiretapping was written in the year 1862. Okay. Um, and the first person ever to be uh, convicted of wiretapping, uh, this was two years later, 1864. And that would so have been is, an actual mechanical uh, applying of one wire to another to, to tap to, that wire. To the telegraph, in oh. fact. And... I think there's there's some indication uh, t- telegraph tapping was common during the American Civil War, right. uh, for instance. But uh, if California at, in this period is is uh, um, passing a law against uh, you know, to, to <laughs> prohibit it, yes. it means that it was pervasive not enough at the time to get a consensus. Didn't, didn't around quite stop it in its tracks though. Was a no, a... <laughs> it never has. The law has always <laughs> lagged behind, but. This uh, this is written at a moment when the uh, Pacific Telegraph is is reaching the state of California. So this is a kind of origin point for uh, electronic communication, certainly in the United States, uh, national electronic communications across the entire American territory. And even then, we're dealing with this problem of uh, wiretapping, electronic eavesdropping. So that, I think, tells us something about the nature of privacy and, and that, in fact, it's a kind of fiction that has evolved over time. Um, privacy as a fiction is an interesting idea. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing to contest, I think. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a cultural invention, and it's evolved in uh, multiple areas of law, 
um, social relations, uh, popular culture over time. There's some really, uh, uh, really great books on uh, that have been coming out mm. recently uh, in the United States on the subject. But communications privacy uh, itself, I think, is 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 a fiction. We we I, I've always been struck, and this is one of the the kind of motivating principles behind the project uh, right now. This book on the history of wiretapping. I've been struck at the kind of nostalgia that often surrounds conversations about communications privacy. Uh, and here I'm only talking about the United States, but there's always a kind of register you know, bubbling beneath the, the national debate and national conversation that there was once a time when we had uh, communications that were secure. There was once a time when you didn't have to worry about uh, your data being monitored, so to speak. Um, and there really wasn't. And privacy idea, ideas about communications privacy in particular kind of evolve in lockstep with mm. this persistent threat uh, and persistent problem, persistent reality of electronic eavesdropping. So, so Susan, as you pick these things up, I mean, the ubiquity of this sort of intrusion, if you like, mm -hmm. or of, as a, a part of art practice, mm -hmm. I mean, what are you saying with it there? How, I mean, in, in particular on that issue of of privacy or otherwise, is there, a, is there a, a point to be made through the artistic presentation of these ideas? Well, one would hope so. Um, but I think that for artists, you know, a, a very significant dimension of contemporary artistic practice has been uh, delving into the sort of social relations of, of communities, of subjects, of people. It's interesting what Brian was saying because there are many moments where one has suddenly quite direct access to the intimate lives of strangers. And for myself, there's, I used to, um, and still do, but it's a kind of, it's a dying sort of tradition, personal inscriptions in books. Mm -hmm. If you scour secondhand bookstores and you open up <laughs> books, oftentimes there's these kind of wonderfully personal kind of inscriptions. And at that moment, one has a tiny glimpse into the life of a kind of stranger. Other more, perhaps more quotidian uh, example would be shopping carts in shopping trolleys in supermarkets. Suddenly you see what someone is eating. Um, you, you have some um, sense of their um, economic purchasing power as well. I mean, so, or if someone has a yard sale and they're, and they're selling all of their, their kind of goods and you see them on the sort of front lawn mm. or at a boot sale, there are these moments that I've been particularly kind of interested in where the private lives of strangers enter into the public domain, perhaps entirely unbeknownst to the person who's releasing this sort of intimacy. And maybe that person isn't even alive anymore. But you mentioned private lives. So there is this 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 base from which all our communications, I guess, begin of a, of a private self. I think Brian was saying there's no such thing as private, or that the, one assumes a certain kind of privacy. And I think uh, that might be, and that's a sort of fiction. Nonetheless, I think when I think about the... Uh, conversations that have been captured on the answering machine tapes that I've archived this is and a project edited. That you've, yes. This is the, one of the projects that's at the Potter Museum. None of those conversations that had inadvertently been captured on tape, which I have to say is an anomaly of the technology itself, because if you didn't answer the phone quickly enough, the machine would continue recording an incoming Some message. Some of us are old enough to remember those times. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> um, exactly. And uh, those conversations that people are having then were archived on tape. And the, it's 
more those kinds of conversations I've been interested in, where there's a back and forth between two people, and it's often extremely personal kinds of information. And I'm sure those individuals never thought that someone else might be listening to their stories, to their narratives. But they also threw them away into a charity shop, hmm. with, you know, which is where you found them. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, but, but Brian, these these are. I guess answering machines are a, a, a very thin end of a very large wedge these days of the way in which we exchange information. And we, we're constantly engaged in this interplay of our, our need to keep things to ourselves and our need to be instantaneously connected. And there's clearly a trade-off in, in putting ourselves in the information environment we currently inhabit. I think that's certainly right. And I think, well, the answering machine is actually a really kind of great case study for understanding just those very relationships. Um, answering machine-like technologies uh, were available, technologically speaking, quite early in the history of telephony. It's really around the turn of the 20th century. They don't become a part of everyday modern life until 50, 60, 70 years later. Mm. Um, and I think the answering machine and its kind of social life, uh, it's uh, a proliferation starting, I mean, what, what, when would you say it really becomes like a dominant medium? Uh, like the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s or I'd so? I'd say the 70s, it would probably was quite ubiquitous then. Though I, I have machines that date to the like 50s, 60s. So sure. the technology mm. still exists um, and very cumbersome and no doubt extremely kind of expensive. Right. Yeah. So the reason why I, I raise this question is, uh, I think, a symptom of how recording technologies uh, were normalized over the course of the 20th century to the point where Americans, Australians, could accept that they had a sort of eavesdropping device uh, in, in uh, a manner of speaking in their in, own in home. In their own home, yes. Uh, and earlier generations uh, didn't necessarily accept that. And I, I think it's a it's, a, a, again, a kind of testament to the pervasiveness of uh, and, and the kind of long-standing history uh, that's, that surrounds uh, this phenomenon, this we, phenomenon of, of, uh, of eavesdropping well, and, that, and recording. We are talking eavesdropping because it's the subject of a, an exhibition at the Potter Centre in Melbourne until October. Brian Hockman and Susan Shupley are my guests and participants in that. And, and Susan, I mean... Brian mentions there, you know, the, the recording machine, and that's the beginning of this technology, you say, you know, dating back to the 50s. Now we'll talk to Siri, we have Alexa in our home turning on the lights. We are becoming utterly unafraid of committing our thoughts and desires to external electronic devices. It's a, a really quick transition. It certainly is, because one of the kind of defining features of a lot of these answering machine tapes, especially the outgoing message, everybody, there's a set of instructions on how to act with the machine, how to transact with the machine. You know, after my message, there will be a series of beeps, at which time I would <laughs> ask that you state your name very clearly. It's somewhat the more intuitive with, now. <laughs> so there's a kind of whole... It's a, we, one has a sense of the technology as kind of being very denaturalizing and that there had to be a certain kind of training, a training for people to accept this kind of mediating technology, where the ones that you've talked about are contemporary devices. They're completely, they've completely uh, embedded themselves into our lives. There's none of this kind of needing to train others as to mm. how to interact. It's a, it, Their presence is a kind of assumed as an integral part of daily life rather 
other than an external agent that somehow has a, a still operating according to a certain kind of sense of artifice or is going to produce a relationship that's slightly artificial in terms of its uh, notions of communication well, that, and rapport. Well, that word artificial probably takes us to the next stage in this process, which will be when those you know accompanying technological intelligences become far more naturally integrated into our world. I mean, that, that takes us a long way, Brian, from that, that sense of wire and mechanical intrusion. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm a historian, so I'm not really in the business of prognostication. <laughs> um, but I think we, we, we can, I think, safely assume a, a number of things about uh, the pervasiveness of eavesdropping, generally speaking, that it's going to scale, it's going to be more... Uh, uh, pervasive. It's going to be more instantaneous. It's going to be more embedded in the fabric of everyday well, life. Will we ever not care? Um, that, that, that well, our... this, this I think is the interesting thing. The other thing that we can kind of project about our future. One of the things that struck me about my research is how every generation has had to uncover this problem, discover this problem anew. Uh, and there's no real historical memory. And it's it's sort of like every 10, 15 years, there's a real sense of crisis surrounding the porousness of personal data, the the security of, of communications. And I think one of the things that we can safely assume is that we're going to not care again, and then mm. we will care. And these kind of trends of political debate, that the kind of political forces surrounding this phenomenon are going to wax and wane Each over generation time. sort of wipes the tapes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's wonderfully said. Um, and, and I think that the, the history, I think, uh, sort of almost guarantees that that is going to be the case over time. And these things, Susan, constantly re-emerge in, in public conversation. One of the aspects of your work in the exhibition is looking at uh, tapes from the, the Watergate and the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. Uh, from Nixon's Oval Office, and there's—I mean—it's interesting that what you focus on is, in fact, not um, not content on those tapes, but erasure is the absence of sound. Yes, it's—I mean, it, that's a fascinating case. And oddly enough, I actually heard an interview, probably about twenty years ago, with the chief archivist at the National Archives in the United States on Canadian radio, and they asked him what some of his most treasured artifacts in the collection were, and one of them was this 18 and a half minutes of silence. And listening to that interview, uh, you know, propelled me on a kind of a journey to investigate this further. And so I became very interested in this gap in the historical record. And then I studied also, of course, as as I always do, is look at the technical organization. And so um, there's no such thing as erasure when you're using an analog tape recorder, one can only re-record, right? It's an additive process. It's not a subtractive kind of process. It's so, the realignment of magnetic particles. Exactly. <laughs> so Nixon's, you know, voice still clings to that tape, albeit it's very, it's radically kind of remixed, but all the magnetic particles that originally captured his voice on tape are still there. They've just been the tape head has has reshuffled those kind of bits of magnetic kind of inscription, if you will. And so so a lot of my work has really tried to look at the, you know, what are the provocations of this 18 and a half minute gap? Because one of the arguments that I've made, of course, is the sheer amount of speculation, all of the ways in which that gap has captured public imagination mm. is far in excess of what anyone could ever say in 18 and a half minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Probably a good point for us to end having having spent slightly less than that and perhaps campus more 
or less than might be possible in 18 and a half minutes. Uh, if, if eavesdropping has tickled your fancy uh, and if absences from Watergate tapes might intrigue you, then you need to head, if you're in Melbourne, to the Impotter Centre uh, where eavesdropping is on show until October 28. Uh, and work there from um, Brian Hockman. He's an associate professor at Georgetown University and Susan Shupley, an artist, researcher, author of Material Witness. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitvega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au